This is a podcast from the Royal Court Theatre. Series 2 was recorded over the summer of 2017. The following content may contain strong language. Welcome to the second series of the Royal Court Theatre Playwrights podcast with me, Simon Stevens. Few playwrights can claim to have defined a theatrical form or process with quite the same conviction as Alecky Blythe. While she's never claimed to have invented the synthesis of verbatim theatre and the recorded delivery of text, in which actors receive lines through an earpiece and perform immediately in reception of the line, a synthesis that has been present throughout her work, she certainly established its definition. She started her theatrical career as an aspiring actor. She studied at the Vibrant Theatre Studies course at Warwick University before doing a postgraduate degree in acting at Mount View. It was while working as a receptionist at the Actors' Centre in 2002 that she attended a course on paperless drama led by the Centre's artistic director, Mark Wing Davey. It was evidently something of a revelation. She took a microphone and recorded out into the streets of Hackney in 2003 and recorded the testimonies of the witnesses of that year's Hackney siege and edited and formed those testimonies into her breakthrough piece, Come Out Eli. Come Out Eli premiered at the Arcola Theatre that year and won the Time Out Award for Best Fringe Production before transferring to the Battersea Arts Centre. Provocative, urban and formally radical, the play excited the attention of the broader theatre community and commissions from the Bush Theatre, the National Theatre and the Royal Court followed. The plays that followed, Come Out Eli, took Blythe into an array of worlds with a shared energy of enquiry. Whether looking into the Wimbledon Tennis Championship crowd for All the Right People Come Here in 2005, the ageing folk of the dating market and cruising for the Bush Theatre in 2006, or the lives of displaced Georgian survivors of the 2008 August War in Do We Look Like Refugees, her work is defined by what she describes as a nose for a story and strikes me as a nuanced tension between a capacity to listen completely and the sense to ask a question of real penetration. Her debut for the Royal Court, 2008's Girlfriend Experience, looked at the lives of English sex workers in an industry increasingly dominated by globalised labour. It was a touching, funny study of sex in the marketplace and, like many of her plays, felt carved out of a quintessence of England. A Londoner of real confidence, the 2011 riots in the capital led to both a documentary film and 2014's Little Revolutions at the Almeida. The tension that seems to run in Blythe's work, a fascination with the intricacies and anomalies of human behaviour and an interrogation of the notion of community crystallised in her most celebrated piece, 2011's London Road at the National Theatre. Working with composer Adam Cork, she found a musicality and nuance in the way in which an English community is decimated by the serial killings of sex workers in Ipswich at the end of the last decade. It is a piece that is widely regarded as having reinvented musical theatre at the National and for me is one of the most successful articulations of the poetry of documentary theatre. She's fearless at locating herself in her documentaries, something that British verbatim artists before avoided, a gesture of acknowledgement that culminated in her playing herself in Little Revolutions and in that acknowledgement of the presence of the author Blythe as 
asks as many questions of the authenticity of documentary theatre as she has celebrated and extended the form. Alecky Blythe, welcome to the Royal Court. Thank you, sir. <laughs> <laughs> that was, that was, it's quite a career you've had, just working through that. Yeah. It's a lengthy, it's a lengthy biography. Yeah, there's, um, it's, it's, my dictaphone has taken me into some interesting places. <laughs> and I got is it a dictaphone you use? Is it an actual dictaphone? It is. It's. Is um, it? I should have brought it tonight. It's a little Olympus um, dictaphone about that big with two little speakers on. Looks a little bit like a mini Mickey Mouse. Recording, recording, not on little dictaphone tapes though. No, 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 digital. So right. it records 27 hours at a time before wow. I have to wipe it all and then kind of like reformat it. So I, I used to, I used to uh, when, I was, when I was starting out writing, my uh, girlfriend as was, wife as is, got me an actual dictaphone with little mini dictaphone oh, tapes. Wow. And I used to wander around the streets of Edinburgh kind of monologuing to myself wow. while I was walking, feeling a little bit like a spy and a little bit like a wanker. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's proper old school. Because when I started, I recorded on mini discs. Oh, did you? Um, and I still have some. Right. Um, and I use them in workshops. I did a workshop back at Mount View last night, and I kind of got out my mini disc players, and like the kids there, they're like, "What are these?" <laughs> you know, I'm like, "These things are brilliant, actually, because you could edit on them. Um, you know, you could put little track marks in, and right. actually, when I started back with Mark Wayne Davy in, in, yeah. in that workshop, I mean, to think of it now, but I was doing my editing. <laughs> on these mini disc players wow. by physically putting in the track marks and then erasing the bit in the middle that I didn't want and then joining up those two pieces and sort of, I mean... I've always loved the stories of people in, like, 50s recording studios, people like the classical composer John Cage... Right. ..who would make things, or Steve Reich, who would make things on analogue tape and then cut, and cut literally it. cut the analogue tape with scissors it. and sellotape. Yeah. Let's go back to the beginning and yeah, okay. do, do my, my classic kick-off question, okay. which is, um, when was the first time you went to the theatre? Well, um, I can't actually remember the first time I actually went to the theatre, but I can remember the first time I had a truly theatrical experience, which was... Um, in a uh, speech and drama class at the age of six. Oh, brilliant. So I had a very, very inspiring teacher called Mrs Blythe, whose name I have since taken. Um, oh. And she was a very formidable woman who could make you cry and also make you feel like you were Maggie Smith. Oh. Um, and in one of the first... Um, and we used to kind of learn poems and recite poems kind of thing. Was this and, in school? This was in school, yeah, right. and performed them at like speech and drama festivals and stuff. Oh. Um, and in one of the first classes she brought in one of the older girls who wanted to rehearse um, one of her speeches from Joyce Grenfell's George Don't Do That. And she needed a load of the younger kids to sit round to pretend <laughs> to be the naughty little kids. And I remember sitting there and I was just like, I just thought it was amazing. We all sort of sat cross-legged on the floor and yeah. there was this sort of, I don't know, she was probably 15, the girl, and I was like seven, um, doing her kind of... Mm, joy and I just was totally transported and I really thought that I was one of those kids just by listening wow. to her and being in this kind of imaginary two-way 
conversation, yeah, you know, yeah, although obviously yeah. we didn't have any lines or anything. Yeah. And yeah. just sort of just totally blew my mind. And that, Literally. to me, was my first sort of, like, the magic of where you can go with yeah. theatre. You know, we were just in a classroom. There yeah. was no lights. There was no... Um, so that was sort of the big... And it was, it was participating as much as yes. it was watching. Yes, exactly. So in your imagination, she'd literally taken you out of the classroom and into her imaginary world. Exactly, it was exactly that. Yeah. Wow. Yes, it was that, and that was just, like, really exciting. Where was? And, where did you go to school? Um, so it's a school called St Nick's, which is um, in Old Harlow in Essex. Right. So you're not quite a Londoner. No, I'm Essex. You're Essex, Essex rather than yes, London. Yes, yeah. yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. So, it's a very um, vibrant theatrical place, Essex. Well, yeah. I mean, really, it was just it was my teacher from yeah. that age. And when it, when I got to, you know, forward wind twenty five years, whatever, um, and I was struggling to get an acting agent, mm. um, having come out of drama school, and I was getting new photos done, and um, my real surname, um, which I won't go into, but um, is maybe a little bit Russian sounding. Okay. And so people would sort of say, "Oh, so you know, you Russian, especially with a." I was using the name Alaki. Yes. Um, and I'd be like, no, I'm from Essex. Mm -hmm. And I just kind of thought it was a, maybe a little bit misleading. So it was a kind of extra thing to like, okay, I'm really going to just try and reinvent myself. I, I changed my surname and having gone through the whole phone book, mm. um, I thought, actually, I'm going to go for a name that actually means something to me. And I chose Mrs. Blythe, so I took her name. Um, and actually, when I did London Road, um, she's no longer around, but I got a lovely card from her husband, because I talked about it in a newspaper interview, um, just congratulating me and saying how she would have been very proud. Mm. Which was sort of really lovely, because, yeah. you know, she um, uh, yeah, she didn't know what any of her students were going to do. Uh, one of my favourite things in these conversations is the the kind of uh, constellation of teachers that have defined oh. our theatre workers' lives, and it's great to add to that constellation yeah. with the original Mrs. Blythe. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's really. It's, you know, we need them, don't we? Yeah, we need those teachers. Absolutely. So, um, was acting always your thing? Yes. Was acting what you wanted to do yes. from that it, moment sitting on the mat? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, really from then. Yeah. Um, How were you at school? Um. I wasn't particularly academic. Um, I was quite sporty. Mm. Um, I was a bit of an all-rounder, but I, I wasn't, um, you know, I wasn't brainy. I wasn't sort of like an A student or anything like that. Mm -hmm. um, and I think my mum and dad probably sort of hoped that I'd sort of get over this kind of acting fat. <laughs> did you do you acting know. classes or acting acting groups outside of school? Um, I did, yeah. I did yeah. a kind of like a Saturday thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, my mum would take me there. They weren't trying to knock it on the head, but yeah. I think... You know, I just think as a, like a proper job, it wouldn't be that. Or they probably didn't think I was even going to get a proper job. You know, I mean, um, you know, my parents of a generation yeah. where women didn't necessarily yeah. work. You know, my mum stopped working when she met my dad. And, mm -hmm. and I think they probably thought, oh, well, hopefully she'll, you know, marry a nice farmer or lawyer or something. <laughs> That'll be that! You know. A nice um, farmer. That's yeah. <laughs> I was sort of from the country bit of Essex, you know. Right, are you? Is yeah, it more yeah. Like, yeah, right, right, yeah. right, right, right. So my grandma was always hopeful that I'd marry a rhubarb farmer. I mean, I don't know. Do they even <laughs> exist? I don't, I don't know. Is it a very particularly <laughs> lucrative kind of like strain of British agriculture? rhubarb farming <laughs> <laughs> Emily's nodding at me to say yes is it right? is Simon, have you actually, never heard of the rhubarb triangle no oh which is an area that uh, oh. solely produces rhubarb 
in, oh. in Essex in the Essex. No, I think it's in Yorkshire. Ah, oh, wow. well, that's where I went wrong. Mm. Obviously, yeah, if you'd I been should. Up in Yorkshire, you would have found your rhubarb <laughs> yeah. But when, so when for you did it stop being something that you did on Saturday morning while you waited to, you waited to meet a rhubarb farmer or get a proper job? <laughs> um, I still think at, at university um, I was I was passionate about it, but um, I mean I'd wanted to go to a drama school from a young age, and my right. my parents were like, no, you've got to get a proper education. Did you go to the theatre as a child or as a teenager? A... Did you go and watch theatre? Not in, no, right. not really outside school. My parents aren't in the arts. You know, mm-hmm. My dad was in business. Yeah. Um, I was just it was sort of weird that I was pulled mm-hmm. towards it. So we wouldn't go to the theatre necessarily, like as a family or mm-hmm. anything. Um, but I got involved in, you know, there's a, like, a very vibrant theatre scene up at Warwick. Yeah. Um, yeah, what was that like? Because that's been generations now. Be- yeah. Because of the affiliation with Warwick Arts Centre? Yes, exactly. Uh, well, not only that, and also the fact that Warwick University is... Is, uh, it's just an on-campus university. There's nothing else to do. Right, great. You know, it's not like you're being sucked into the bars and the clubs of, you know, B- Bristol or Manchester or wherever. Mm-hmm. You're you're sort of in between Coventry and Leamington Spa. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you, I think it made us uh, create our own fun. Great. You know, it wasn't just theatre. There was a there was a radio... I had a radio show. Um, what did you do on your radio show? Um... Well, me and my friend Emma, we used to read from... I had this kind of big book of, like, astrology and stuff. So we used to get people to phone up and I'd interpret their dreams. And, I mean, all sorts of rubbish and she'd do funny voices. And and it sort of played out over, yep. you know, in the kind of Warwick Union and stuff. Yeah. Um, and I, I think we'd probably talk about films and shows that we'd mm-hmm. seen as well and, and play funk. Yeah, great. Uh, <laughs> nice show. That's a good show. Um, York University was really similar where I was. Was it? it? Was quite, yeah, I mean, York's a beautiful city, but actually not an exciting city to right. live in. It's a beautiful city for a day trip or a night out. Right, OK, yeah, so where but, does that energy go? So you You've go into so the much... campus and it becomes goes into exactly. imagination. Exactly, you know, loads of music socks and, you know, there was a lot mm. of... It wasn't just theatre that I felt was kind of very vibrant there. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I still had it there. Then when I left Warwick... Um, I was still, you know, hadn't found my rhubarb farmer, and I was like, I still want to go to university. My mum, I still want to go to uh, be an actor, and so I did a one year um, postgrad at um, Mountview. Mountview, in my imagination, is associated with kind of like musical theatre. You're right. Yeah. And it, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but because of that, it wasn't my first. Whatever you want. (laughs) It wasn't my first choice. (gasps) Sorry, Mountview. Only because I can't sing a note. I mean, you know, it's kind of weird that they would want me. But again, I was doing the acting course Mm -hmm. um, and I'd wanted um, to go to Weber Douglas, you know, or Lambda or, you know, one of those. Um, Didn't get in. And I think in hindsight, actually, I know a lot of people try year after year and it's quite normal if you don't get in. Mm -hmm. But actually, I was like, oh, gosh, well, I'm not very good. I, I better go to the place where I got the offer. And also, I was sort of, well... You feel like at that age you're getting on a bit because yeah. you've done kind of no, three years yeah, exactly. already. You just want to kind of get working and stuff. Yeah. So I thought, okay, I'm just going to go. Um, you know, I'll be fine. I'll get an agent. That's mm-hmm. all I'm really in it for, kind right. of thing. And I'm, you know, I'm maybe a little there, a bit kind of, you know, leg warmers and high kicks. Mm-hmm. But you know, I'll find my own little tribe within it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and of course, that it? didn't happen because right. I didn't fully. I don't think I fully committed 
to it. I was living with mates from um, university. Yeah. So th- I was sort of a little bit still kind of hanging on to my... And actually, my university friends are still my closest friends now. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. And I don't think I totally, you know, gave myself up as much as you need to when you go to drama school to get completely ensconced in it. Mm. Um, so, uh, yeah, I was maybe slightly kind of separate. Anyway, uh, I, I did the course. I didn't get an agent. Um, right. And that was that was that. But now I'm thankful that I didn't because if I did, maybe <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't be here talking to you. When, but when you when you so you got this job at the rece- as the receptionist on the amazing yes. actors centre. Yes, yes. Which I think I was doing a workshop for one the play that became One Minute in 2002. Oh. So you must have been. We must. Our paths oh, must have right. okay. glanced yeah, across probably, one that another. Signed you in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing sliding doors moment. Yeah. What was the actor centre yeah. like for you? Well, it was. I mean, you know, for me, it was the one place that made me feel like um, I was. You know, I could be not necessarily that I was because I wasn't actively doing getting paid, but I could be an actor because actually working on reception there was only one of the many places where I was a receptionist. Right. I was temping and I was, you know, also yeah. working in other, you know, more corporate places and stuff yeah. like that. Um, and so. Being able to go somewhere and, you know, do a, you know, audition technique class and do yeah. a sight reading class, whatever, yeah. with other people who are in the same situation just made me feel connected to that community yeah. of other people in the same boat. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that was really um, important. And really, basically, I'd pretty much done every class in the brochure. Um, and then I came across across Marks yeah. um, acting without paper. He was the art, was he? He was kind of the director of the. He was he was running the actor centre. Yes, so he'd it's run a, Central before. Yeah. Um, and then he was in charge at the actor centre. Coming towards actually the end of his tenure, I was very lucky to. Right. I think I did his last course of teaching this technique before he left. And tell us about the course. What well, did he do with you? Well, he told us just to turn up with a dictaphone. I, and I thought it was a. I thought it was more like what you do. <laughs> I thought it was a creative writing course. Yeah. I, I thought I was going to have to write something. Um, I'd written a couple. I'd written a monologue that I used to do um, for some auditions, um, which had gone quite well. I, mean, I still didn't get the bloody part, but people had said, "Oh, that's where's that from? That's yeah. quite good." And I'd sort of gone, "Oh, I, I, I wrote that, whatever." So it made me think that maybe I could. Do some writing of my own. Was that was that, when did you start writing of your own? When did you start? So that writing? was around about two thousand and one. So starting late, you weren't a kind of teenage writer. No, child, you didn't write. No, for I wrote maybe your poem for Mrs. Right. Blythe. <laughs> 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 um, but no, not like not plays or scenes or anything like that. So I just started to kind of write some speeches for myself to do in auditions. Yeah. Um, being a paucity of there was quite a paucity of good female. Yeah you know, chunky yeah. speeches at that time. Um, um, so then I kind of thought, oh, maybe I can write something because I wasn't getting into any of the hot new plays that I wanted to be in, like mm-hmm. here or mm-hmm. at the Donmar. Mm-hmm. You know, I wasn't getting a look in. Mm. So I thought, oh, well, maybe I'll make my own thing to be in. And, and so that's where that came from. And then suddenly Mark's like, right, OK, so what you do is you go out and you interview people, you record it in here, record it on your mini disc, and then this is the acting technique, and he taught us the acting technique with the earphones. I was like, oh, I don't even have to write anything. This is great. So tell me about that technique, right, because I, I'm very ignorant of it. 
to really break it down? Okay, so you um, take a subject matter. Yeah. Um, I then fell into then developing it and, and trying to find a story, a narrative, but uh -huh. in its basic form, it could just be a heading, yeah. like love or fear or yeah. death, whatever, and then approach people. Ideally, um, as obviously we were all actors, so we were coming at it with our acting chops. Yeah. Um, approach characters that would be fun for you to play quite far away from yourself. This is what Mark and Davey would encourage exactly, you to do. You've, exactly. Okay, so you so you would go out into the city. Exactly. And find somebody you could play in a play. Yes. Yeah. And carry yes. On. Um, and maybe they were maybe they were um, sitting in a cafe. Mm -hmm. Maybe they were the um, usher in a cinema. Great. Just kind of go up to somebody yeah. and start to kind of strike up a conversation with them yeah. about this subject, and then be open to where the subject might go so that is that subject is just your starting point right very good um, yeah very good so then it's kind of a way into their yeah. lives yeah. and then we would come back groups of us we would all go out and then we come back the following week and we would have on our media players selected our like three minute highlight yeah. and we were probably only doing quite short interviews at that time probably right. 20 minutes ago so like not, nothing like what I went on to just like a couple of hours of sitting down talking to somebody um and then the way you perform it is you put your earphones on, you press play, and then you speak um, a kind of like a beat after the voice that you hear. Right. So you are speaking and listening at the same time. You're kind of in the shadow of it. So you've got yeah. to have the voice on the tape loud enough to be louder than your voice reverberating around your head. Do you see? It's a little bit, yeah, I do completely. I'm wondering whether it's like rubbing your belly and tapping your it's, head at the same time. Yes, <laughs> is it is. And, yeah. and initially the main challenge for the actor then performing it is to not look like they're listening really, really hard and the eyes go dead like that. They've got to look like they're in the act of talking. Right. What, actually, what you're doing inside is concentrating really hard because you have it's not learned. So what was it? I mean, it must have been really revelatory to you given that it prompted this remarkable career but do you remember yeah. them do you have a muscle memory of those classes do you remember how you reacted to those experiences yeah i um i think it made me a better actor right if i'm honest right. and i think it does that with a um you know everyone who does it not to say that i mean it takes a really really good actor i think to do it really well in the first place but yeah. um and one of the reasons for that is it removes any self-consciousness because yeah. your your Great, very good. brain is concentrating so hard yeah. on the listening yeah there's very little room for like say if you get a laugh on a line or something like that yeah also, as soon as you start thinking oh this is going really well you've missed the next word yeah good so actually it keeps you very tight and really in the moment so it sort of reined me in a little bit um and i found a enormous kind of liberty in, in doing it. It's weird because people would kind of think, oh, well, isn't it really constricting because then you just have to do... But actually I found that very freeing Yeah. Um, to be able to just concentrate like that and just keep very rigorous. Great. Um, and, yeah, I loved it and I, and I could do it and um, I think I also realised that I could talk to people yeah, how do you, I, I was thinking what how I would find if I if I was an acting student being given that task, 
I think I'd be terrified of the notion of approaching, the, you know, the, the, the hypothetical cinema rocher or, or cafe person yeah. and kind of asking them to talk to me about love or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you didn't mind that? You didn't mind... Um, well, y- you think you would, but when you've kind of got this little thing in your hand, a yeah. dictaphone or whatever, it yeah. sort of it does give you a licence, yeah. weirdly, to ask people questions that you maybe wouldn't normally ask them. Yeah. And, and because they're strangers you can actually ask them more questions that you might sort of dare to ask your friend or Very your good. friend would actually even impart with really, you. Really, really clear. So often I sort of tell people, don't, when I'm sort of teaching it and stuff, I'm like, don't interview your friends, don't, partly because they'll probably sound the same as you anyway and where's the huh. fun in playing yeah. that person. Yeah. Um, but also you're going to get probably deeper, richer, more extraordinary material from complete strangers. There, was a mo- there must have been a moment though, that prompted you to use this as more than just an acting technique, but this was going to be something that you were going to make theatre out of, that led to Come Out Eli. Yes. That Um, I keep wanting to call, wanting to say, come on Eileen. Come on Eileen, (laughs) I I can, that's forgivable, I think. (laughs) That's really embarrassing. So what prompted Um, you to go, I'm going to make a play out of this? Well, I I think uh, we did a couple of group shows where a few of us would go and um, do our collecting. um, And so the piece would be created by, you know, everyone in the group. Mm. And then we were going to do another one and it got to a stage where I felt like people maybe weren't kind of doing as much of the interviewing as I was. And I was creating a lot of the stuff. Um, And I thought, oh, they're not kind of like... Pulling their weight. Come on! I get maybe I was just more desperate to get a bloody job. Um, so I went to Mark and said, um, "I think I'm going to do." So what Mark was teaching actually was um, the technique that he'd learned from Anna Devere Smith, who we should mention. Um, Tell me about. Who is the American actress and professor? Um, Tell, say her name more slowly. Anna and, Devere Smith. Right, great. So she, Mark had worked with her in the states. Mm-hmm. Um, on she'd done a solo show where she had gone out and, and <clears throat> done all the interviews and then played all the parts herself. Mm-hmm. Um, she had learnt it like we learnt it in London Road, so moved away from the earphones okay. and learnt it with all the ticks and the detail and, and done it brilliantly. Mm-hmm. She then did a group show, an ensemble piece, which Mark directed, mm-hmm. and he noticed that actually Anna was managing to kind of keep it authentic and keep the detail but he noticed some of the other actors were kind of slipping a little bit and inventing things and leaning into things and exactly so when he taught it at the actor center he chose that in performance we should still keep our earphones on to stop us so that's how i kind of learned with from here in a very kind of you know pure form and also loved it because it is there is something so special when you've got the earphones on um So I went to him saying, I want to do an Anna Devere Smith. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go and do all the collecting and I'll right. play all the parts. Great. And he said, I think it's a great idea, but um, if you're just going to be doing monologues, you're maybe overlooking some of the wonderful material that often comes from duologues and three-handers because actually then you get the... You don't just get the relationship of the one person you're talking to, but you get, if you're interviewing a husband and wife, yeah, you good. get their relationship They're between done, yeah. each other and, yeah. you know, overlapping, yeah. interrupting, blah, blah, blah. So he said, don't rule that out. Why don't you do all the collecting, but, um, you know, if you need other actors in it, you just cast other actors and you cherry-pick the parts for you, if, you know, if this is your 
Um, so I, I decided I wanted to, you know, make a piece that would be a vehicle for me to try to get an agent, and I had no grander mm -hmm. ambitions than that. And I didn't pretend that I did, you know, I was just like, yes, I'm trying to get an agent yeah, here. Yeah, great. Um, and because I was kind of part of the furniture at the Actors' Centre, they, they sort of, they said over, over a period of time, I sort of managed to um, go from... You know, they gave me some supporting kind yeah. to do it. So I sort of did a very early two-hander version, and then they gave me the Tristan Bates Theatre where we kind of where it kind of grew. Um, so that's that's what happened. But I went out with the idea of making a play about fear because I was still thinking in the way that Mark well, had taught us. Well, you take an abstract theme like love and so fear instead of love. Exactly. It wasn't the event of the Hackney Siege. that. We, exactly, yeah. that's right. So with that idea in mind, I thought, okay, great, that's a good, uh, yeah, I won't rule out, you know, bigger scenes. Um, and I had just moved from South London to East London mm -hmm. um, and uh, was kind of, you know, just attuned to, like, what situations might be good, rather than just going up to a, a cinema usher and saying, you know, what are your... Are you scared yeah, of spiders? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I was, like, thinking of, like, situations that maybe might lend themselves to people naturally talking about yeah. fear in that way. I just yeah. thought maybe the setting could feed into it somehow. And there happened to be yeah. a siege yeah. going on up the road in Hackney Central. <laughs> Very conveniently. <laughs> um, so, you know, really, I had the fear yeah. idea first. It wasn't that didn't come. No, no, that's, It was that's that really way around, which that's was strange. Um, so I was going up there, and in the same way that Mark had always talked that the, the subject is just the starting point, so I might start off with, oh, you know, gun crime, streets of Hackney, mm. what's it like living around here? And also, because I was a new I was an outsider yeah, that was actually quite good because the then I could just be the sort of, of a newcomer yeah. yes and yeah. the sort of rather dumb outsider like I always oh. think writers should always aspire to the status of tourists yes <laughs> it's <laughs> true kind of, then you learn like the you most you see things which people don't even look at when they live somewhere exactly yeah. yes exactly yeah. Um, so um, I started getting stuff when it, and it you know sort of blossomed because then people were then just talking to strangers who were standing around. There was a police cordon mm. and there were sharpshooters up on a roof and it was sort of pre Twitter and because yeah. actually so there wasn't there was a local journalist there yeah but it wasn't there wasn't Sky TV there wasn't any of there these big guys there weren't people filming on their phones and posting immediately no, on Twitter and it becoming no, a viral no I was the only person yeah. that really you know maybe a couple of other local journalists it was just you know it was a different time then um, and so just by me throwing in a question would spark interesting conversations between people who'd never really met before. Yeah, you know, right, like, oh, right. I think it's the bloke that I've seen in the shop. Oh, I don't right. think it's him. I think it's... Uh, I can't now. I now can't move my car because it's in the cordon. And, that, and it sort of mushroomed. Did that feel ethically complex at all? Did you ever think, you're somebody who's living with a house under siege. I'm somebody who's going to get a drama agent, an acting agent. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know... If I'm, if I'm honest, yeah. at that time I wasn't thinking like that. Right. I was just thinking, oh, I'm getting really good material. This is really right, great. quite exciting. And actually, people who I was talking to, pretty much, apart from one one woman, actually, actually one woman who was very who had been upset, and that I did. Yes, I I did find that difficult, um, because she was clearly very upset by it. But generally, everybody else 
were weirdly excited about it. About having the possibility of telling their story as well. Yeah, yeah. well, and also about the fact that they've got Mark Gunman, you know, like SWAT teams yeah. running around with, like, you know, bulletproof vests <laughs> and stuff. Yeah. It was quite exciting. Yeah. So they sort it's of like wanted to talk about telly. it. Yeah. It was probably only the one woman when she got very upset that I was like, I got that first sense of, you know, which I have had since of, oh, is this right? Am I some kind of, you know, vulture uh, when, when people's kind of pain and stuff? Were you, f sorry, this is, feels like a tangent, but I don't think it is. Were you familiar with the verbatim documentary theatre of the kind of 90s that uh, people like Robin Soames, Max Stafford Clark were making here in another theatre? No, only that? once I started to work in right. that way. Because um, what strikes me about your work as distinct from them is the unapologetic presence of Alecky Blythe. Yeah. So when you look, you know, those early kind of like documentary plays. Yes. There's no Robin Soames character. No. It's like it's like the material just presented itself. Yes. So there's no compromise or ethical compromise that you've, re I think, dramatised really beautifully. No, no, work. that's right. I didn't know about, you know, I was literally aiming for a part in Holby, you know. <laughs> you know, I wasn't, I honestly didn't have, a, you know, a very broad kind yeah. of theatrical knowledge at that, yeah. at that time. I really didn't. I was just kind of on this kind of, you know. Were you surprised by the success of Come Out? Eli. Yeah. Oh, come on, Eileen. We yeah, come, come on, Eileen. Because Dex's Midnight Runners were quite hip at the time. <laughs> kind of number one. No, sorry. Um, oh my God! Yeah, we, I mean, com completely. We yeah. did it. Um, so um, the actor centre said we could put it on for five nights in the yeah. Tristan Bates. Um, somebody said, "Oh, I think you should look at this girl. She's doing a couple of shows at Edinburgh. I think she might be quite interesting." Uh, so we gave a part to somebody called Miranda Hart. Um, <laughs> it's like, yeah, she's yeah, quite good. She's good. Uh, <laughs> um, but actually, the st we sort of had Don Gillet, who actually was another Mount View um, student. He, at the time, was um, he'd done um, Baby Father. Yeah. And, so he was our yeah. kind of star great. sort of vehicle, which was great. We mm -hmm. sort of... Um, so that kind of felt like felt like oh we might be actually onto something because if he wants to do it maybe it's not a complete a load of old tosh. No. And how did um, they find the headphone acting? Were they were they using the headphone? Uh, the, yeah. yeah, 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 They all they all. I think once they saw each other do it, they realised how great it is with the earphones. So they totally kind of gave themselves mm. up to it. You know, there's only a couple of actors I think that I've auditioned who have kind of gone oh, and wanted to work with who have kind of gone. Oh, it's not for me. Will you forgive my ignorance when I ask you if you were in come out, Eli? I was, but oh. I yeah, I didn't play myself. Miranda played me, so oh. Alecky was a part in a character. Yeah, in it. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but of course, because I was trying to prove what a brilliant actress I was, I was like, I'm not going to play myself because you know what does that prove to anybody? Right? So your objective about that job was still to get an acting. Oh yes, yeah. yes. When did it shift? When yes. did it was just like actually. Because there's so many playwrights yeah. who start playwriting yeah. because they want to write themselves a great role. And good playwrights. Yeah. Rebecca Lenkovic started because she was right. an actress. Right, um, yes, yes. Uh, Harold Pinter. Uh, yeah, Pinter, Shakespeare. Yeah, right. You know, yes, John exactly. Osborne. Um, Alexi K. Campbell started off as an actor oh, and was you? writing plays. And you've kind right. of done the same thing. Thing, yes, but, yes, but, yes. But, but invented a whole new theatrical form. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I kept going with it. So after after Eli, um, the next few shows, I was still in them. Yeah, um, and we're sort of running the company now. So we had this company called Recorded Delivery, Recorded Delivery that's right, yeah. um, and I was sort of like in them and and making them. Um, and it wasn't really until I started to feel like a writer 
funnily enough, is when I did the girlfriend experience right. here. Tell us why that felt different. Um, well, the piece was different in that, unlike all the most of the shows I've done before, where the actors do quite a lot of doubling up. Yeah. With the girlfriend experience, there were um, five actors, four um, actresses. And they just played the one part throughout. And right. then the one male actor, yeah. he played all the different punters. Right. So it felt for the first time that rather than um, like with Eli and mm -hmm. all the right people come here, mm -hmm. where you're playing lots of different characters and lots of different locations, mm -hmm. this one was kind of set in, you know, it was like a, more of a chamber piece set in the one Right, very good. It had space. a more cogent kind of dramaturgy to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, was, which was also what I wanted to see if I could do as well as a... As a moving on the form to yeah. see, well, you know, can you do verbatim and try to do what they do at the court? You know, like write Great, a... Great, really. Try lovely. to do a proper play with Was that because you were making it for the court? And Did that impulse come from making it for the court? No, it, it came from more me wanting to push the form and, and yeah. be like a writer <laughs> um, and just kind of try to sort of... Um, uh, yeah, that's what I was aspiring to. I yeah. aspire to, you know, the likes yeah. of you and Chekhov. Or, you know, those are <laughs> like the great, you yeah. know. Yeah. That's what yeah. I was looking at and thinking, gosh, if you just get that with the Baytown, but you can't always kind of control where it's going. So, so it's it about a, the control of the form. Yeah, you know, yeah, really yeah. Lovely. And trying to see if I could... So basically in cruising, the reason really it came from... In cruising, there's a nine-minute scene in it. Um where um, the central character is visited by her best friend and her best friend's fiancé, and she's very sore about it because she thought she was going to get married, and mm. then her best friend ends mm -hmm. up kind of getting proposed to. And there's this kind of lovely scene where she kind of goes around to congratulate them and give them um, an electric um, pepper mill. Um, and it's very barbed, and, um, it's this, and it was a night, and I was like, we made a nine-minute scene. I was really excited by that because... Previously, in all everything else, generally you're looking at, you know, two minutes here, yeah, two minutes great. there, maybe three minutes. And this, I've, we felt like Matthew Dunster directed it, and it was the first time that I felt we could sit down and really talk about objectives, Lovely. you know, and all of the kind of Stanislavski stuff, which generally with other verbatim, like, well, just kind of, you know, just, just say, say what, what say what they're saying, <laughs> and you're pretty much going to be there. Do you yeah. know what I mean? So this that was quite exciting to me. So yeah. it was a development of that really. So, you go, so can I can I set something if if the situation is rich enough, um, just with those set characters, and then maybe imagine doing that on every scene, sitting down and going, what am I, what, yeah. what am I, whatever. Yeah. So because the actresses were just playing those one parts throughout, it felt less like they were putting on a part, like when you're playing lots of different parts in other verbatim mm -hmm. things, mm -hmm. and it felt more like, you know, they were being them. Yeah, So, and because these uh, real-life women were um, older than me and um, uh, they were slightly niche and that they were kind of slightly larger ladies, yeah. um, I felt that it was quite important that we should try to cast actors who had that kind of who had that kind of weight and age yep. um because it sort of added to the poignancy of the of the story so even though i can remember coming here and talking to emily and she you know she's like so Adiki, would you like to be and i was like oh my god i'd love to be in a play at the court i can't believe i'm gonna i'm gonna say no but i said i think it's i think it would be wrong and i really think we should try right. and look for these 
This is the casting bracket. Very good. Was that the first one you weren't in? Yeah. Right, brilliant. Yeah. The um, I just want to kind of go look at a kind of broader perspective. When I yeah. look at your work, it's interesting to me how you choose where you're going to point the microphone, how you choose your theme or subject, how conscious... How, how long before you start recording have you decided that you're going to... Like, with Girlfriend Experience, how long did you know that you wanted to make a piece about... Because it's about English sex workers yeah. whose appeal is that they offer something that the kind of more globalised traffic don't aren't offering at the moment, the Girlfriend Experience, is it? Yes, yeah, so, yes. So, like, with that, how, how long do you know your subject before you start work? Um, I, and how do you choose? I... I generally get to know them as I'm... I try to record from very early on. When did you decide you wanted to make a show about English pro, English sex workers? Um, when I went to a fancy bar in Knightsbridge with a friend of mine and she said, all the girls in here are... A lot of the girls in here are, you know, sex workers. I was wow. like, what? And sort of the, uh, you know... Scales. Oh, yeah. my God. Yeah. And um, I actually started doing a little bit of work with more high class. Yeah. Um, I, um, Lucy, um, uh, Diary of the Secret Diary of a Cool, hasn't... Yeah, yeah was, Treble, yeah. Yeah, was sort of beginning to sort mm -hmm. of happen at that time. Um, and so I was starting, I was kind of having a few conversations with them, but they were, I mean, they were just really unruly and taking too much coke and, like, not turning right. up for interviews and stuff. I was like, this is my play for the court! What do you mean <laughs> you're, like, spun out, you know? Like, you know, they just weren't taking it seriously, Simon, yeah. you know. It was really... <laughs> I didn't realise how important the Royal Court was. <laughs> Jesus. Some people. Uh, so, so I was going to knock it on the head, actually, and grow my brow. Um, was keen for me to stick with it, partly because of the location of where this theatre is, of course, it's close to, you know, high-class mm. prostitution, whatever. Um, so um, I then started, um, and I kind of got through in with those girls through friends of friends kind of thing and I thought how am I ever going to get hold of anyone that uh, you do, do doesn't know me but yeah. I started reading girls blogs and I uh, the one blog that stood out for me was of a woman who was talking about dusting and mm. looking after her elderly father and mm -hmm. doing her accounts um, and unlike most of the blogs um, it wasn't titillation it was literally a diary of like right. this is my day yeah. and you know and then I've got a punter coming later but and it was just it sort of felt very real and yes. um, I like and also I I liked her from what she wrote you know she yeah. wasn't the, mm -hmm. sort of the hard sexy mm -hmm. it, there was just something very human about her so I just got in touch. I thought, oh, she's never gonna Is that talk to me. Important for you to like your people, your interviews. Yes, yes. The more the more I do it, I realise it. Yes, it is. It's yeah. re it really is. Because um, it's got to be a two way thing. They've kind of got to like me too. Right. Actually, it's because it's a relationship that you're sort of building with them. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, she did. Um, she, I, I got to meet her, and um, she told me lots of interesting things. And I said, well, this is great. Um, but I don't want to do a monologue. I want to make a play, and I yeah. wanted to. I had an idea that I did want it to be located in this one situation, mm -hmm. wanting to kind of test the the realms of what you could do with verbatim. Um, and she said, "Oh well, you know, Tuesdays and Thursdays I go down to this parlor, you know, in 
blah, blah, blah. Um, and I was like, oh, okay. Um, <laughs> could you think I could come? Um, so she, through her, she got me in. And then I, and what I loved about them was they weren't the street, you know, the girls with the, 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 the crack problems, whatever. The, yeah. Obviously, that's the, that's the only reason they're prostituting themselves. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't the high class, which mm -hmm. I felt like we, generally, we all kind of know about those two mm -hmm. levels. But then there's this kind of niche in the middle. Unless you are a punter and, you know, shopping in that area, you don't really know about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is, you know, these sort of middle-aged ladies who are, you know, dunking Kit Kats and watching Midsummer Murders. And then the bell goes and off they trot, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just so, and it's it's daytime drop yeah. in. They're not yeah. they're not shooting up. They're not even drinking gin. You know why? Um, uh, what is it? Do you think that makes an idea ripe for an Alecky Blythe verbatim piece, but uh, as opposed to say uh, a journalistic essay? Hmm. What gives it the theatricality? Um. Well, I think a journalistic essay could be done um, after the event. I'm I'm trying as much as I can to capture things as they're happening yeah. in, in in the present. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I'm not living with them all the time, right. but you know, I think a lot of my best moments are when you're there and you capture something that happens. That happened right with London Road, there. right? Yes. Yes. Tell by, us, tell us how that happened with London Road. Um, by going into a situation when it's live and yeah. when it's happening. So it's a, I mean, London Road is really, I think, come at Eli just with bells on, you know, because you know <laughs> the siege was happening and off I go, yeah. and then after the event, I went and did a few follow-up interviews. It's kind of London Road, but over a much longer yeah. period of time, yeah. um, because what you get is a situation that is kind of. Unusual that people aren't used to, so therefore they talk about it. They're experiencing the world and themselves in a different way because mm. they're like, "Oh my God, you know, there could be a serial killer on the loose. We're not shopping after dark, and it's not something they'd necessarily think about otherwise, would they?" Yeah. So yeah. it's about trying to cap. So often it's it's seeing if I can drop everything and go yeah. and get it. And I, you know, I often get quite stressed when I'm making something because like I'll be like oh god I should have gone yesterday you know because I'll go and they'll say oh yesterday this happened blah blah blah, blah. I, think, oh, god. I didn't get that in the present you know it's like the scene you want to write you yeah. write it yeah 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 and but you're but but you you have to be kind of on the hoof and there yes. and present right yes exactly and then it's exciting you don't necessarily kind of know where it's going yeah. um but you can't capture everything but as much as possible you want it to be um Happening and unfolding as you're on it. The uh, what do you? The, I'm, I'm I'm kind of going all over the place. I'm finding what you're saying incredibly fascinating, and I kind of there's loads of stuff I want to talk about. Like, what are you doing? What do you do between plays? Like, because when I'm, <laughs> like, if, if if what you're doing is so reactive to something that's actually happening, yeah, are you just waiting for something to happen? Yes, sometimes. Yeah, I mean, sometimes. Yes. So I might come up with a. So uh, about four years ago, I came up with a subject for something, yeah. and it's taken me lots of failed attempts um, uh, trying to get access into a story under that subject. Mm. Um, 
to find a story that had had a forward, or or just to even get access. So, like with Mark Wing Davies start, starting you off with love, or then you taking that with fear, you yes. have a kind of theme which is interesting. I might have you, a, yes. The, and you're kind of what researching and percolating, yes. and looking for event to crystallise that. Theme. Yes, right. yes, yes. Event right. or um, not, you know, it, it could be a personality as well. Yeah, it could right. be a person. So right. cruising was was a person really. So the lead character in that was a a much smaller character who actually got cut in the final version, but she'd been a small character in um, Strawberry Fields, which was a play to right. Pentapus. Yeah. And all the actors loved playing her when uh, we'd done the kind of rough cut and stuff, but unfortunately she was a little bit too off-piste and wasn't quite pushing the story forward, so we had to cut her, but she was a joy to play. Mm. So when I was looking for a new something to write, I thought I went back to see her just to have a chat and she starts saying oh I'm off on my cruise next week and knew these are all my dresses and look <laughs> at my earring matching earrings oh, two hours later I was just like I think I might you know there's a play because <laughs> yeah. I think it's a combination of of character and and story so sometimes you might find the character and think oh they're a great talker yeah. but then there's natural no narrative to follow but I had a she was on a mission to find her husband and she was going on dates are you aware of themes that you keep returning to so when you find a character or a world that resonates you're kind of like oh this is this is my kind of um, this is an Alecky Blythe play here it's a feel I think I probably have a feel for personalities or something for Pete yeah I sort of think oh yes they feel like they'd be um when you say like the British yeah, there's something very English about your work. There is something, yes, I don't know what that. It feels like you're is. kind of the, uh, one of our great English dramatists at the moment, and, so you're, and you're kind of you're not necessarily. Although, although a few of your shows have been dominated by London, it's kind of like the edges of England in some way. I don't know if, if that's me imposing that on you. No, no, I think that I, I mean I'm not conscious. I'm not conscious of that, but right. I do know when I've kind of met some people and I just kind of think yeah I know you're gonna you sort of feels right yeah. and I, it's not that I'm I don't necessarily consciously go sniffing for them but then when I kind of meet them I sort of think oh yeah they're just they've got a little quirk they've just got something about them that See, makes them that, stand out I a little bit that room, I, that, I recognize that in my search for a fictional character because oh, like theoretically okay. I could write a fictional character about anybody yeah. But it's more like it, you need a resonant frequency. Yes, you yes, know, It's just yes. like something makes you vibrate or it doesn't make you vibrate. Yes. And you can't lie about that. Yes. Which is interesting yes. to me. What's your working yes. day like? What yes. do you do as like of a day? So I have a screen. Um, I, I kind of have a... Um, uh, I mean, sometimes I've kind of had office spaces, but at the moment my spare room is my office, so I work mm-hmm. from home. Um, and I listen... Uh, two hours and hours of audio like you are, Emily. Um, on a kind of big screen. Do you transcribe? No, the first edit is I kind of do a log. Right. So um, I sort of listen and I kind of put um, cuts in, so I kind of pull down the interesting bits of material and then I write down or type up the time codes. Yeah. So you kind of have like a Bible Quiet. of that first edit. Yeah. And that is the most painful as well because I sort of record everything. So it's it tends to be quite long and boring and the and the thumber is is much further down the line once you've cut away the dead dead wood. But of course that first one is really important because you need that log. Because yeah. maybe in six months' time you go, Oh actually that bit when they talk about 
X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. Like, that's now relevant. Right, great. So great. you just go back into your notes yeah, and kind of yeah, yeah. have a look. So um, how many hours of recording have you made with something like... So London Road is, what, a two-hour show? Yes. How many hours of recording did you have? Uh, um, I, I didn't add up with with London Road, but it's, it's going to be, like... I should think about 150 hours. Oh, my like Lord. That. Yeah. Yes. Wow. I always it's think writing, writing, writing is really interesting. That I think my kind of model for writing at the moment is you generate material and then you select material and then you articulate material. And it's the same thing. You yeah. generate material, yeah. 150 yeah. hours of recording. Yeah. You select material yeah. with your logging, yeah. and then it's the articulation. Yeah, and the, and that's the for me that's the that is the fun bit, right? Yeah. Is the. Do you type? Do you type dialogue, or is it? No, I. Have you got scripts though? Because your books are published. Yes. Right? So do you type those out? No. Um, the the kind of once once I've kind of got something close to um, a, a draft. Mm-hmm. Um, um, a lovely person from NH Nick Humberts has <laughs> 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 the arduous job of transcribing yeah. it all. Um, With the same precision because the linguistic precision is important for you, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, so, so then I'll go yeah. obviously kind of go through it and do kind of yeah. fiddling, whatever. And it's kind of quite funny because sometimes they can't quite hear what it is and they think they're talking about marmalade and they're actually kind of talking about bucket and spade or something. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Just like it sounds really yeah, similar. Do, yeah. <laughs> um, so there's kind of lots of kind of fiddly whatever. Um, but but interestingly, like actually, you'd think it'd be quicker and easier to, and it probably would be quicker to do the uh, those edits then on the page, yeah. right? Yeah. But because a lot of what I'm doing is the the way people speak, I have to I actually have to do the edits with the audio, because it's the tune of yeah. the delivery and things sit nicely together the way they sound I mean yes obviously what they're saying is important too but sometimes that's a false economy so it worked so well because people carry musicality with the way they speak yeah yeah Yeah. so the you know then you kind of get tones and stuff like that which you can do from listening so it's 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 generally lots of audio waves like that (laughs) moving them around on a on a on producer Emily's screen on a screen yes (laughs) yeah yeah would you ever like make something up have um, you ever tempted to just like write yes and I think I'm sort of leaning towards that because I get frustrated when things don't you know you spend a lot of time on maybe on something and then it doesn't go in a certain direction yeah. or or I do miss a key day and right. I just think uh, so I'm I'm in in wanting to to do some kind of more work in maybe film yeah. and TV, those requirements, they just need a pacier story. So I'm taking baby steps to, um, yeah, fictionalise within the non-fiction. Yeah, great. Um, Which is terrifying, obviously, but also really liberating and exciting. Good to have terror, though, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Terror's your thing. Yeah. Fear's your starting point. (laughs) Carry it into the role. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, I I, I can't ever imagine a day where I just, like, make something up from nothing. But it would be lovely to get to a point where a lot of it is written inspired by real life. Yeah, for sure. That's what I would, yeah. For sure. I'd aspire to do that. Yeah. I could talk to you for hours, but we're running out of time, which is really, uh, really sad. Alecky Blythe, thank you very, very much indeed. Thank you, Simon. Thank Thank you. you. We have a 
thing at the end of the uh, interviews on this on series season two of the podcast, where uh, where we get notes and questions from uh, producer Anushka, who's uh, who's been listening carefully. Have you got corrections or clarifications or notes or questions? No, no, no. One, one clarification. Very yes. good. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the rhubarb triangle. <laughs> <laughs> I love, I love the rhubarb triangle. Uh, Where is it? Where is it? I'm it going is, to find my farmer. It is a nine square mile triangle in West Yorkshire right. between yes, Wakefield, Morley, and Rothwell. It's famous for producing early forced rhubarb. It used to be much bigger. At its peak, it covered an area of around 30 square miles. Wow. And West Yorkshire once produced 90% of the world's rhubarb. Wow. And last fact, there's a giant rhubarb metal sculpture in Wakefield. Brilliant. Wow. Brilliant. I'm off there. That's, we've got to go and That's find where I'm our, going this weekend. Rhubarb farmers. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That's great. Oh, lovely. <laughs>